This is Peter Hall, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Pathology. In this short podcast, I hope to tell you something about material in the April issue of the journal. But before I do so, let me tell you something about our, our recent visit to USCAP 2011 at San Antonio. The Pathological Society and the Journal of Pathology are very keen to attend meetings such as USCAP, the European Society of Pathology and other large meetings of pathologists, partly to promote the society and the journal, but also to find out what people think about the journal, and in particular to try and promote the journal as a place to publish your research. At the USCAP meeting, I was able to meet a lot of people and to find out various people's views of the journal and how it's doing. In addition, in a few weeks' time, I'll be attending the American Association of Cancer Research in Orlando for exactly the same purpose. If you're attending that meeting, please come and stop by the Wiley Blackwell booth and come and say hello. I'd appreciate that very much. So, what about the April issue? It begins with an article by Angelo Detroit from Treviso, which is a commentary on recently published papers within the journal on the molecular pathogenesis of chordoma. Those papers from Adrienne Flanagan's group in London described amplification of a gene called T, sometimes known as brachyuri homolog, and also the epidermal growth factor receptor in chordoma, and demonstrated their role in promoting cell proliferation in those tumours. In his commentary, Angelo argues that despite being a rare disease, these observations in chordoma pave the way for new clinical trials that might provide new insights in how these tumours might be managed. The next paper, by Melissa McConaughey and her colleagues from David Huntsman's group in Vancouver and a number of other institutions, is entitled Subtype-Specific Mutation of PPP2R1A in Endometrial and Ovarian Carcinomas. While the name is a bit of a mouthful, PPP2R1A turns out to be quite important as a scaffolding subunit of protein phosphatase 2A holoenzyme. Or put more simply, it turns out that the protein product of this gene has an important structural and regulatory role in kinase signalling within cells. The crucial observation that Melissa's paper reports is that somatic missense mutations are frequently found in high-grade serous endometrial tumours but are quite uncommon in endometrial endometrioid carcinomas and are rare in high-grade serous carcinoma of the ovary. This paper, together with another in the American Journal of Pathology and other papers recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine and in Science, provide a new perspective on the molecular pathogenesis of these tumours and, as is the case with Cordoma and the commentary published by Angela de Troyes, pave the way for new therapeutic and diagnostic strategies. So what else do we have in the journal this month? The next two papers focus on mouse models of human disease, one using a transgenic method to look at the role of the Epstein-Barr virus-encoded LMP1 protein in antagonising Wnt catenin signalling in nasopharyngeal dysplasia and carcinoma. The other paper uses a genetic strategy with knockout mice and heterozygote mice at the LKB1 locus as a means of investigating the molecular pathogenesis of Pertz-Jaeger's syndrome. This latter paper from Andrew Silver's group clearly demonstrates the role of Wnt5A signalling 
as a contributory factor in polyp formation in this disease. Now I well understand, and it's viewed by many, that mice are not men. But it remains the case that we can learn a great deal by carefully manipulated genetically based experiments in murine and other model systems. We're very pleased to be publishing these kinds of papers in the journal and look forward to more such papers in the future. The next paper is from the Stem Cell Research Institute in Louvain in Belgium and describes detailed and compelling molecular cell biological analyses of what are called induced pluripotent stem cells generated by reprogramming fibroblasts in vitro. By reprogramming these cells, particularly in the direction of myogenic differentiation, the authors hope to be able to develop systems which may lead to custom-made cell protocols for the treatment of muscular dystrophies. I find it really quite extraordinary how pathology has changed in recent years. Once the preserve of retrospective, diagnostically focused papers Increasingly, pathologists and pathology is focusing not on diagnosis, but on treatment, finding new ways to address complex clinical problems using the techniques of morphology and interventions using cell biology and molecular biology. And I'm confident that that's really the way that the Journal of Pathology is going. I guess increasingly our focus is defined by the strap line on the front of the journal, Understanding Disease. And another paper that focuses on this issue of trying to understand disease mechanism comes from Ken Parkinson's group at Barts and the London and focuses on how mesenchymal cells accumulate in fibrosis and the role of telomere-independent mechanisms in this and how metalloproteinases also contribute to ameliorating fibrotic events. Again, we have a complex fusion of cell biology, molecular biology and morphological mechanisms. Further on in the issue, a Chinese group report on the role of a gene called SKI in modulating healing and scar formation in rodent and rabbit model systems. Uh, in fact, Ken Parkinson's data and this data on SKI have some commonality and certainly complement each other. Other papers in the issue report studies of alpha-9 beta-1 integrin in breast cancer as a novel cell surface marker of the basal phenotype that promotes tumour cell invasion, studies of pseudogenes in human tumours, studies of androgen receptor negative prostate cell proliferation using SMAD-MIC P21 signalling pathways, and studies of prion proteins and how they can impact on human embryonic stem cells. The last seven pages of the April issue are devoted to an alphabetical list of all the reviewers that we used during the calendar year 2010. It's a long list. We use two, sometimes three, and on occasions four reviewers for every paper. Without the peer review process, scientific publishing would not be, as it is, robust and rigorous. Whilst peer review comes in for a lot of criticism, it's like, perhaps, democracy. Maybe not perfect, but it's the best we have. The hard work, effort and commitment of all of those reviewers, reviewers from all over the world, from North America, from South America, Europe, Asia, the Middle East, Africa, is enormously important. And by publishing that list of names, we hope in a small way that we can publicly recognise their efforts. Anyway, so that is the April issue. Those of you attending 
the AACR meeting at the beginning of April in Orlando. I look forward to seeing you there. If not then, perhaps you'll listen to the next podcast. <laughs>